Well, turn with me to John chapter 15, and we'll look at three verses this morning, 9, 10, and 11. John chapter 15, 9 through 11. When we began this series in John 15 and 16, which we've entitled Costly Christianity, we spent two weeks looking intently at free grace theology, or otherwise known as easy believism, which basically denies any connection between the love of God and salvation and obedience to God because of salvation. Those two are kept separate. And the free grace proponents immediately cry legalism whenever we speak of obedience. And so for the free grace proponent, salvation in Christ has to stay away from concepts like repentance, obedience, following, and that sort of thing. Theologian and author Wayne Grudem suggests that the, fi- the free grace or easy believism movement weakens the gospel. And he gives five ways that the free grace theology weakens the gospel. He says, first of all, that Free grace theology misrepresents the gospel proclaimed during the Reformation. It misrepresents the Reformation gospel. The Reformation of the 16th century reclaimed the biblical idea of justification by faith alone, but it also reclaimed the idea that faith alone is the means to salvation, but faith never stands alone, meaning that it's accompanied by then sanctification by the bearing of spiritual fruit in the life of the truly converted. The second way the easy believism weakens the gospel, free grace theology avoids a pleading, a plea to the unbeliever to repent of sin. There, there is no plea to repent of sin because you don't have to repent to be saved. Grudem points out passages in the New Testament in which the gospel message is the message of repentance. For example, Luke 24, 46-47, Jesus said, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. That's the gospel. The third way Grudem says the free grace theology weakens the gospel is that free grace theology gives professing Christians a false belief in their own salvation. It gives many professing Christians a false belief in their own salvation because for the easy believism folks, repentance, the bearing of spiritual fruit in obedience and continued belief all the way to the end of your life, these are not necessary for salvation. So the lack of those things causes no alarm to us. Well, if your life doesn't bear any fruit, doesn't resemble Christ at all, you believed one time when you were eight years old, you don't have anything to worry about. That's what they would say. The fourth way free grace theology weakens the gospel is that it defines salvation solely as intellectual belief in the facts of salvation. It's just intellectual belief. But what is most often left out, or at least at best underemphasized, is a a profound trust in the person of Jesus Christ. This leads to a bond. This leads to a relationship where there's loving obedience. How can you say you have a relationship with someone that you ignore 24-7? And the fifth way that free grace theology weakens the gospel is that it relies on, as Grudem says, quote, numerous, highly unlikely interpretations of the New Testament to defend their view of faith alone. Free grace uses New Testament passages in ways that are so strained and unpersuasive that frankly even scholars and pastors who disagree on a lot of other issues all agree 
that the free grace theology use of the New Testament is really foreign to a literal historical grammatical hermeneutic or Bible study method. And we've already pointed this out in, in previous messages. But that leaves us with the question, what is the relationship between the love of God and salvation and our obedience to God because of salvation? And we've already emphasized that our obedience does not result in the love of God, but the love of God results in our obedience. We understand this, that the truly saved will, in fact, bear spiritual fruit. We spent an entire week on that. Jesus has been speaking of spiritual fruit in John 15. If you're a Christian, you will bear fruit. Jesus explains this now in verses 9, 10, and 11, this relationship between love and obedience in such an elegant and seamless and delicate fashion. It's almost poetry. Verses 9, 10, and 11 are almost poetic. It's so delicately sewn together. And let me give you an opposite example of what it's not. I've always been a somewhat creative person. I'm experimental in nature. If it's creative, I've probably tried it one time or another. In high school art class, I was the only guy who thought that it was possible to make a square ceramic pot. It it didn't work. It blew apart in the kiln, but I was going to try it. I've tried it all, though. Uh, Writing music, painting, crafts, woodworking, remodeling. I, I like it. If it's creative, it's fun. And if I've tried it at least once, one time as a little tiny kid, I got a kit. It was a sew-your-own stuffed animal kit. How hard can that be? It came with a paper pattern, a roll of furry cloth, and stuffing. And it was supposed to be a cute little bunny. This is easy. You just put the pattern down, cut it out, trace it, no problem. Sew all the pieces together. When it was almost completely sewn together, I started stuffing it, and I was so excited. I mean, I, I made a toy. I sewed up the last little part, sewed the little puffball tail on it, and I turned it around, and this hideous creature was staring back at me saying, what have you done to me? I didn't make an animal. I made Frankenbunny. <laughs> stuffing was poking out where I missed stitches. His eyes were crooked. He had this horrible kind of, not exactly a smile. It was like Mona Lisa in a horror movie. He was not a happy bunny. He was a disturbing bunny. And he was so scary, I couldn't keep him in my room. And I don't remember how I got rid of him, but I'm still a little bit scared of Frankenbunny because I didn't have the skill to make it come out right. Well, unlike Frankenbunny, Jesus skillfully stitches together lofty ideas into just a few words that are just sheer poetry. The ideas of obedience and love are sewn together such that you can't really determine where one ends and the other begins. One ends and one begins, one begins, one ends. The the beautiful, almost unseen, tiny stitches with which they're sewn together consist of little tiny words called conjunctions and one little adverb, by the way. And by stitching together these ideas with these connecting words, the Lord Jesus gives a profound explanation of the interconnectedness, the interdependence of the love of God for us and our consequent obedience to him. Let's just read these three verses, John 15, 9 through 11, so poetic, so beautiful. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. 
These things I have spoken to you that, your, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It's just a couple of dozen words. And yet, this is so profound. The first stitch which joins together these ideas of love and obedience, we'll call this stitch the Father's love for the Son. The Father's love for the Son. Verse 9 as the Father has loved me. As is a little tiny comparative conjunction. It can be translated just as, which it is in verse 10. So what is the as the Father has loved me? How has the Father loved the Son? Well, this first stitch sewing together love and obedience, it serves as the foundation, as the bedrock for our understanding. Now, it's obviously an infinite topic to try to grasp how the Father has loved the Son. That, that, would, be, that would take really weeks and weeks and weeks to even begin to scratch the surface. But in the context just of John's gospel, we can see a few aspects to the Father's love for the Son. Some of these aspects would include authority. Authority, John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father has entrusted to the Son, in the very next verse, all decisions concerning eternal life for humanity. Not only has the Father given the Son authority, He's given Him closeness. Closeness, John 5, 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. The intimacy that the Father and the Son enjoy, it's lived out in the sharing of all the knowledge of God's plan. The Father's love is manifested thirdly in reward. In reward, John 10, verse 17, Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. The obedience to the Father, to the Father's plan of sacrifice, proves Christ's undying affection, His undying allegiance, His undying loyalty to His Father, which is part of their love relationship. And if you, if you looked at Philippians chapter 2, you would see what that reward is, that He receives a name that is above every name, that every knee should bow. And then in the Gospel of John, Jesus also receives glory as part of his love relationship with the Father. Jesus prayed in John 17, 24 that all the elect would be with Jesus where he is, quote, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So the love of the Father for the Son includes authority and closeness and reward and glory, and it's a love that has always been It has always been manifested before the foundation of the world. The first stitch in the relationship between love and obedience, the foundational idea of the Father's love for the Son. We get to a second stitch, delicate and fine, the Son's love for us. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. This is a little Greek adverb, so I or also I have loved you. This little adverb describes the verbal action of Jesus' love for his disciples, his verbal action of of his love for us. That Jesus' love for us is like unto the Father's love for him. The love of the Father for the Son includes authority, closeness, reward, glory. It's a love that has always been, it's always been manifested before the foundation of the world. So is that also the case of the Son's love for you and for me? Authority. Revelation 22.5 says that in the final state, in the new Jerusalem, on new earth, all of God's people will reign forever and ever. 
This is going back to God's original purpose for mankind is found in Genesis 1 that we have dominion over the earth. And so we're given authority by the Lord Jesus Christ. We reign with him. How about closeness? Hebrews 13.5, precious to us. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The promise we receive in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is that when we finally meet Christ Jesus face to face, we will always be with the Lord. Do you realize that when you're united with Christ, you will never be apart from him ever, 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 ever again? How about reward? In the Gospels, Jesus speaks of our heavenly reward 16 times directly and many times more than that indirectly. He also speaks of our current reward for following him, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, meaning the family of God right here with us. And so, yes, we receive reward. And how about glory? You know this verse, Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. And, by the way, it's a love that has always been. Ephesians 1 tells us that we were chosen in love before the foundation of the world. And so, of course, this love from Christ, which gives us authority, closeness, reward, and glory, it is His love at the cross that purchased the pardon for us, which made this love available. Christ's love includes His entire expression of love, going all the way to the cross, all the way to death, to pay the penalty for our sins. Now the sewing needle moves to make a new stitch, almost imperceptible, but so fine, so delicate. We've seen the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for us. The third stitch in the connection between love and obedience is our unconditional love. Our unconditional love. Verse 10, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments... Little conjunction, if. This is what's called a conditional conjunction. It's setting up a condition. And the condition is, if you keep my commandments. Now, in just a moment, Jesus is going to make a comparison to himself that if we keep his commandments in the same way he's kept his father's commandments. And obviously, this presents us a problem because we can't measure up to that standard, can we? That's not something I can do. Jesus is sinless and you are sinful and I am sinful in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, Paul rebuked the Corinthian church for acting in a fleshly way. And he says, you're misbehaving. Revelation 2, verse 4, Jesus rebuked the church at Ephesus because they had abandoned their first love. First John 2, verse 1, the apostle John calls us to sinlessness, but immediately acknowledges that we do sin and that Jesus is the answer. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin... Since we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So how are we to understand Jesus' call then to keep his commandments? Well, that brings us into the realm of the doctrine of progressive sanctification. That we are progressing in the Lord. Now, this precise Greek construction of this clause, if you keep my commandments... It renders it what's called a third-class conditional clause. You don't have to remember that. That basically what it means is that this condition is looking for a result in the future, not necessarily immediately. What does this mean for us? It means that in the end, when the account of your life is seen, when you have striven and you have desired to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, you didn't fall away. You kept your eyes on the cross 
This is what is promised in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That in the end, you will be transformed. And we've said this often here. It is a progression. It is a, it is a process that the Lord Jesus himself will finish. And this life of seeking to be obedient which really is not a burden, that's freedom. I'm free to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to be enslaved, just go try sinning a lot. Ultimately, that freedom to be obedient proves the genuineness of your faith. Obedience does not cause genuineness. Obedience proves genuineness. Jesus has already said in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is the heart's cry and attitude of the genuine believer. When I speak to somebody who says they're a Christian and and I begin to try to convince them to obey the Lord, when they push back and say, I don't really want to do that, I don't want to do that, I don't like that, I don't like that, they're not a Christian. It's your heart's cry. You don't wake up every day as a Christian and say, how many ways can I try to weasel out from under what the Lord would have me to do today? You wake up praying, Lord, help me to live in the manner that is pleasing to you this day, this day. That's our heart's cry. You're not perfected, but your obedience is unconditional. Why? Because Christ's love for you is unconditional. It's permanent. It's forever and ever and ever. So what is it that motivates us to obey? It's his love for us, which generates our love for him. Don't obey Christ because you're afraid of him so much as because you love him. And cherish him. Our our obedience is to be wholehearted and full. No exceptions. No extenuating circumstances. Well, this is what the Bible says. Well, you don't understand. No. The condition that proves genuine salvation is unconditional obedience, motivated and based in love. You want to learn biblical counseling in one minute? Here's biblical counseling in a nutshell. Do you love Jesus? Yes. Jesus commanded in Scripture that you do X, Y, and Z. Do that. No. Then you don't love Jesus. Okay, I'll do it. Okay, I love Jesus. That's it. Biblical counseling is, here's what the Bible says. Do that thing, regardless of how you feel about it, because you love Christ. I don't want to do that thing. Then you don't love Christ. There's no motivation there. I'm sure that the martyrs being led to the stake to be burned alive that, that they weren't saying, oh, I don't really want to do this. They weren't saying that. Love and obedience are sewn together so beautifully here. The Father's love for the Son. The Son's love for us. Our unconditional obedience. There's another little stitch. It's fine. It's delicate. We'll call this stitch our identity in the Son. Our identity in the Son. In this case, the connecting word is an implied then. If you keep my commandments, then you will abide in my love. This is a classic if-then statement so often found in the Bible to proclaim truth. Now, already in verse 9, Jesus has stated this in imperative form as a command. Abide in my love, meaning remain in my love, persevere in my love, stick it out in my love. One translation rightly says, make your dwelling in my love. There's a deep sense of intimacy and unity and oneness here. You're in the love of Christ. The love of Christ is in you. 
Christ's love for you is your identity. When someone says, who are you? You say, I am the one whom Christ loves. That's your identity. Whether we call ourselves, we call ourselves Christians. We're named after Christ. In the human quest to find meaning and identity and significance and worth and value, you need search no further than Christ. I am the one for whom Christ died in love. That's your identity. And this is the heart, this is the core in this connection between love and obedience. They're, they're mutually dependent. They're interrelated. Love does not exist without obedience and obedience does not exist without love. The two must go together. In fact, in John's first epistle, he makes very clear that love and obedience are really hopelessly intertwined. Christians confess sin. 1 John 1, 9, we read that this morning. Non-Christians deny sin. 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Christians obey. 1 John 2, 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Non-Christians do not obey. 1 John 2, 4, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Christians love the church. 1 John 2.10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. Non-Christians do not love the church. 1 John 2.9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Christians live patterns of righteousness. 1 John 3.6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Non-Christians live patterns of sinfulness. 1 John 3.9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Listen, The one who claims Christ and yet consistently falls into the second category ought to be alarmed, ought to be afraid and fearful, and ought to repent immediately. In fact, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul was telling some of the members of the church at Corinth. He said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Entire books have been written on free grace theology. Entire books written on easy believism. By the way, most of them are self-published because respectable Christian publishers don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. All it takes is one verse to debunk the whole thing. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. That deflates the entire error of free grace theology. Every single member of the Corinthian church intellectually believed the gospel when Paul came the first time. 1 Corinthians 1 is abundantly clear on that fact. And yet, because of their misbehavior and rebellion, he's calling them to examine the validity of their profession of faith. Debunks the whole thing. Our identity in the Son is proven day by day by day by our continued yearning to abide in him, to obey him, to be pleasing to him, to do what he asks, no matter the cost, no matter the price, no matter what must be given up. You give it all up. There's another little stitch, a fifth stitch in the relationship between love and obedience. We'll call this one our example in the sun. Our example in the sun. In verse 10, there's another little conjunction translated just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. In John 17, Jesus would declare that He has done all that the Father has sent Him to do. He's accomplished all the work. And that's the big lofty version of the Father giving the Son commands and the Son obeying Him. But long before that, 
Jesus came into this world as a Jew, fully human. He was born under the law of God. Galatians 4.4 4 says he was born under the law. So you know on Sunday evenings we've been studying the book of Exodus, so let's use the Ten Commandments as an example. Did the Lord Jesus Christ, born under the law, keep his Father's commandments? Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus said in John 17, 4, that he has glorified God while on earth. Jesus trusted and believed his father perfectly. He was zealous for his father's glory to the point of cleansing the temple twice. He thanked his father continually. He yielded to his father's will in all things, 100% of the time. Second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a likeness with which to bow down to. Jesus condemned false worship in John chapter 4. He read and preached and prayed and sang God's word with a pure heart. Luke chapter 4 shows us that. He is the image of the invisible God, so he would have no temptation to make a false image. The third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. He perfectly revealed the Father accurately, John 14, 9. He spoke only the words given to him by the Father, John 12, 49. He only ever spoke truth about the Father. And by the way, he lived in such a manner that the Father would not be ashamed to have Jesus bear his name. Fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Jesus worshiped at the synagogue every Sabbath. It was his habit. He did works of kindness and help on the Sabbath. Mark chapter 2, he proclaimed himself the Lord of the Sabbath and he ultimately secured our Sabbath rest in his death on the cross. How about honor your father and mother? What must it have been like to be a sinless child with sinful parents? Some of your children think that's their lot in life, but that's not really true. He submitted perfectly to his earthly parents as a child. Luke chapter 2, he helped his mother when she needed him at a wedding. John chapter 2, even from the cross, Jesus made provision for his widowed mom by placing her in John's care. He obeyed the law in all things. Sixth commandment, you shall not murder as God. Jesus is judge and he has the right to judge any man for sin. But as a human being, he never once hurt a soul for personal vengeance. He even said himself, could I not call 12 legions of angels? But he didn't do it. Far from taking life, he saved life. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He saved sinners from their sins. John chapter 5. Seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus never crossed any inappropriate boundaries with women, with even his thoughts being always perfectly pure. He was the model of treating women with kindness, respect, love, and compassion. And as the heavenly husband of his bride, the church, he would lay down his life for her. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Jesus opposed the money changers and the animal sellers in the temple, John chapter 2, who were stealing and profiting off the people's need to make sacrifice. In fact, far from stealing, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says that he was the one who was rich who became poor so that we could have the riches of heaven. How about the ninth commandment? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Jesus always spoke the truth because he is the truth. He often revealed the hearts of those around him, sometimes to reveal sin. Sometimes he said to people, you will not inherit the kingdom because I know your heart. And sometimes he revealed purity. He said of Nathanael, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. 
How about the 10th commandment? You shall not covet your neighbor's house or wife or property. The one who created all things, who owns the heavens and the earth, didn't own property on earth. Everything that he owned could be divided by a few soldiers at the foot of the cross. He received only that which came from his father's hand, Luke chapter 4. He didn't covet taking immediate power of the entire world when it was offered to him by Satan in Matthew 4. And he would wait patiently to receive his rightful inheritance only by going faithfully all the way to the cross. What an example. What a model. What a pattern for us that abiding in his father's love meant obeying all that his father commanded him to do. That's what love is. Now, can I show you how close and fine and delicate these stitches are? How melded and blended and fused our love and obedience. You have to listen very carefully to this or you'll miss it. In John chapter 14, in the previous chapter, obedience was the measure of the disciples' love for Jesus and the measure of Jesus' love for the Father. That's upward. I obey, showing that I love. John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. In this chapter, it's the opposite. Obedience is the measure of the Father's love for Jesus and Jesus' love for us. It's a downward measure. In other words, in chapter 14, your obedience proves that you love God. And in chapter 15, your obedience proves that God loves you. God has changed you. He has regenerated you. When you wake up one morning and your first thought is, how might I please the Lord this day? You take that as praise God. God loves me because I had that thought. He's made you into a new creation whose heart yearns and longs for the things of the Lord. And the free grace folks cry legalism, legalism, legalism. No, no, no. It's very simple. Legalism says first comes obedience, then comes love. Biblical salvation says first came love, then comes obedience. It's very simple. Remember the paralyzed man in the pool of Bethesda? Jesus healed in John 5. 38 years paralyzed, Jesus healed him. And after healing the man, Jesus told the, some, told the man something ominous, kind of chilling. He said, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Why would Jesus tell this man that? Jesus called this man to follow him and the evidence of truly following him was to sin no more, to follow Christ in obedience. But the man did not want to follow Christ. Instead, he went to the Jewish leaders who wanted to kill Jesus to tell them that Jesus had healed him on the Sabbath, which wasn't against the law, by the way. But the man showed he was not a follower of Christ because he would not obey. By the way, the eminent New Testament scholar C.K. Barrett, he points out with his profound simplicity that not only does obedience arise out of love, but love arises out of obedience. Love arises out of obedience. As a pastor, I get a question quite often from believers. How can I love Christ more? You know what the answer is? Obey him more. How can I sense love for God? Do what he commanded. And you will sense that love. Because the more you love him, the more you'll obey him. The more you obey him, the more you love him. The more you love him, the more you'll obey him. 
You know what Jesus calls that beautiful interwoven relationship between the love of God and the resulting obedience to God and our resulting increasing love for God? You know what he calls it? He calls it joy. Joy. In fact, our next fine, delicate stitching together of love and obedience, we'll call this one the resulting present joy. The resulting present joy, Jesus says in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you. And here's our next little connecting conjunction. That, in order that, for the purpose of, that my joy may be in you. What's the goal of his instruction? It's all about giving them joy, giving you joy. That as you obey the word of God, your joy increases. This is like Psalm 19, verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now, this is so important. Jesus isn't imparting a generic joy. He's not imparting an outside joy. It is his joy, the joy that already belongs to him. So the obvious question is, what is the joy which Jesus has? Well, it's joy based on his oneness and relationship with his father here in this text. It's joy based in completing his father's work. John 17, 13, Jesus' joy is rooted in having obeyed his Father to the fullest, that he lived a completely fruitful life, that he brought to fruition a finished work. Well, what's the work that Jesus did? You're sitting here. The work that he's done continues. He brought the church into being. The joy that Jesus has always had, he's now sharing his joy. And listen, this is so, so important Your joy in the Lord is only possible in the midst of wholehearted obedience. There is no such thing as a Christian joyful rebel that doesn't exist. When David had rebelled against God and was miserable, he cried out in Psalm 51, 12, Restore to me the what? Joy of your salvation. By contrast, those who are being faithful to obey the Lord, who are being faithful to him, even in the midst of persecution, those who are obeying all that the apostles had taught them to obey in the early church, Peter testifies about them. He says in 1 Peter 1.8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. How is it that a rebellious unpersecuted Christian is miserable while the non-rebellious, obedient, persecuted Christian is filled with joy because obedience, love, and joy are a package. They're a package deal. The free grace, easy believism movement has fostered a belief that you can make a profession of faith, subsequently define obedience as legalism, and therefore ignore the commands of Scripture and still live some sort of utopic, existential, joyful life because you're doing whatever you want and you still get to follow Jesus. It's a lie. Listen, if you were Satan and trying to deceive someone into believing as a Christian when he's not, would you try to make him miserable or give him the false appearance of happiness? Who would give the false appearance of happiness? Solomon tried out free grace, by the way. He tried out the free grace idea. Ecclesiastes recorded that he tried out every worldly pleasure you could possibly imagine to find happiness. You know what his conclusion was? Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For that is the whole duty of man. That's where true joy lasts and abides. When you're doing something you personally don't want to do 
and yet you know this is exactly God's will for you at that very moment, you're walking in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Oh, there's such joy in that. There's delight in that. That's the secret to going through anything, anything that's hard. I'm going through this thing. I would rather do anything but this today, Lord, but I know this is your will for me at this moment. Therefore, I find joy because I'm walking with you. What fine and delicate and tender stitches Jesus used to join love and obedience, which results in joy. The Father's love for the Son, the Son's love for us, our unconditional obedience, our identity in the Son, our example in the Son, and the resulting present joy. Oh, but there's one more little stitch. It's so tiny. It's so subtle. It's so refined. We'll call this stitch the resulting future joy. The resulting future joy. There's one more little conjunction at the end of verse 11, and it almost looks like Jesus is repeating himself. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Full, in the New Testament in particular, has the idea of being completed, of being consummated, of something coming to fruition. He isn't just repeating himself. He's saying you get present joy now and future joy later. Because before joy is consummated, before it's done, in the next chapter, Jesus tells them what must happen first when he leaves them. And when the world is now devoid of the presence of the incarnate Son of God, he says in John 16, 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow, future verb, will turn into joy. It will happen at a later time. The fulfillment of joy happens when all the work of Christ is done on earth. After the apostles and every subsequent generation of believers up to us and every generation after us have been faithful, that's when real joy comes. By the way, we see this in the expectant prayers of the saints, the prayers we should have. John 16, 24, Jesus says, Until now you have asked nothing in my name, asking you will receive that your joy may be full. Same word. And in the context, the fulfillment of joy will happen at a future time when some particular incident happens. What is it? Two verses earlier. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. Future joy is connected directly to seeing Christ face to face. When all the work is done, when every last soul has heard the gospel, when every last one of the elect has been brought into the kingdom. Listen, the Old Testament is intimately familiar with the idea that the consummation of the believer's joy is connected with the coming of Christ with his triumph over his enemies, with his bringing into the fold all who will follow him, with his setting up of the kingdom of God on earth, with his restoration of the the physical decimation of earth that happens during the tribulation period. Old Testament is is filled with this. Isaiah 25, 9, it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Isaiah 35, 1, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice. Isaiah 51, 3, for the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places, makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of God. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Isaiah 61, 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. 
Isaiah 66.10, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. Zephaniah 3.14 and 15, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. This is all still future. This is all still coming. Zechariah 9 verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And you say, aha, got you on that one. That one's already happened. One millimeter later, verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the earth, to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah 9 verse 9, the first coming of Christ. Skip one millimeter to verse 10, the second coming of Christ. What are we to do? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. John the Baptist knew the source of his joy and it might surprise you His joy was to do the bidding of the Son of God, to obey Him such that the glory of the Son of God would grow and grow and grow. And John gave a picture of a wedding and the difference between the bridegroom, who is Christ, and the best man, who is John the Baptist. He said in John 3, 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Numbers of Old Testament passages, Isaiah 62, Jeremiah 2, Hosea 2, picture Israel as the bride of the Lord. And John is saying, I get joy from seeing the bridegroom come for his bride. The best man serves at the pleasure of the groom, arranging, organizing the wedding. John's point is, I'm here to point to the glory of the groom. Not to myself. And now here's the surprising part. He successfully turns the focus off of himself, but he gives the key to this joy. The key to the joy of John the Baptist, John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's joy. That's joy. You are to obey because of the love of God to save you from your sins. And in your ever-increasing obedience, your love for God will also increase. And out of all of it, you will receive joy both now and most especially when Christ returns. How does this work today? Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. He must increase, but I must decrease. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. He must increase, but I must decrease. Wives, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. He must increase, but I must decrease. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. He must increase, but I must decrease. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Join me. He must increase, but I must decrease. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. He must increase, but I must decrease. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them highly in love. He must increase, I must decrease. Be at peace among yourselves. He must increase, I must decrease. 
I exhort the elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. He must increase, I must decrease. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. He must increase, I must decrease. See to it that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. He must increase, I must decrease. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. He must increase, I must decrease. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up. He must increase, I must decrease. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. He must increase, I must decrease. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. He must increase, I must decrease. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. He must increase, I must decrease. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let's hear it. He must increase. I must decrease. Let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, he must increase. I must decrease. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. He must increase. I must decrease. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He must increase. I must decrease. This week, pick something in which Christ will increase and you will decrease in a tangible, measurable way. God will help you. You have, your, you have his spirit. Are you a follower of Christ? Then obey him and your love for him will increase even as you decrease and he'll give you his joy is eternal, abiding, forever joy. If you're not a follower of Christ, there is no joy for you. Every moment of happiness is simply putting off the inevitable. You must come to faith in Christ or the supposed happiness you think you have in this life, the searching for meaning, the doing whatever you want in the name of self-hedonism, of self-seeking, it will come to a crashing end when you stand silent before the throne of God and on the great white throne, Jesus Christ himself says, depart from me, I never knew you and casts you bodily into the lake of fire. If you want joy, it is costly. First, it costs Christ his life and second, it costs you yours to follow after him. But what a sweet trade, isn't it? A short life of a little bit of suffering followed by eternity of grace and peace with the Lord. Follow Christ. Our Father, we thank you for this text so poetic, so beautiful, so artistic, so elegant. In so few words, Jesus says profound truths that in the last hour we've been inadequate to explain. Lord, I pray for a man or a woman here today who does not know Christ that they might bend the knee 
bend the neck to have the yoke of Christ placed upon them. For he promised, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Lord, I pray for the man or woman or boy or girl who needs to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. To come by faith and faith alone as your spirit draws that they might receive the free gift of salvation. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.